You are listening to a White Phosphorus Pictures podcast. Broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico, I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Off to the Witch newsletter number seven. And so tonight we are talking horror films and what happened behind the scenes of many of my favorite horror films, which are probably some of your favorites as well. So this previous week on October 13th was the release of my book, South Texas Blues, and It is something that's been in my life for a very long time, and it's apropos to the subject matter tonight, which is what happened behind the scenes of some of the most incredible horror films, and many of those were independent motion pictures, things like Night of the Living Dead, Evil Dead, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which South Texas Blues is about. This phenomena is just as interesting to me as are any um, strange things in the sky, in the wilderness, in the seas, or uh, on the ethereal plane. So, uh, because it's just so amazing to me that a group of people where all odds against them come together to make something so obscure and mostly lambasted, you know, horror films were um, praised by certain circles, the people who loved them. And, uh, you know, they made money Uh, but very few of them were respected until now. That is, you know, it seems like these days the horror movie is truly respected as an art form in cinema, in literature, but even, you know, referring to Stephen King for a moment, a lot of people forget that literary critics and, um, fellow authors alike, you know, look down upon King. But he didn't care. He continued and um, ended up influencing the imagination of uh, people all around the world, all of us, one way or another, you know, unless you've been living under a rock and don't read and don't watch movies, have some kind of Stephen King DNA in our imagination. That's so amazing to me that one human being, okay, whether you're channeling this stuff uh, from some other dimension or not, that one human being's imagination can affect the world. And South Texas Blues is partially about that. It's partially about the struggle for a dream, even though all odds are against you and most people don't even understand why you're working so hard for it. Uh, And I wrote it, I, I began to write it in the early 2000s. And, you know, around that time, I was in my late 20s and uh, around the age of Toby Hooper when he was making the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, independent, movie maker. I was making documentaries and I was working really hard to somehow achieve a budget to make a horror film. And I was in the right 
frame of mind and the right place to, uh, to write this thing. And since then, my writing has improved, and um, so I rewrote the screenplay uh, and revised it. And after all this time, uh, you know, it was adapted into a comic strip throughout 2012 in the pages of the Mighty Fangoria magazine. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Fangoria uh, has been in print since the late 70s, and it is the premier horror movie magazine. And I grew up with it in my hand days before the internet. Uh, you know, the only way you could see a preview of motion pictures or things to come or in the terror teletype in that magazine uh, was through pages of magazines like Fangoria. And back then there weren't many. So it was a wonderful place. And it was also the place where I first read some of the stories that occurred behind the scenes of everything from Return of the Living Dead to George Romero's uh, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, and to, also, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it was just a couple of stories here and there, and I had ordered in the early 90s, actually, or I think it was the late 80s, um, a documentary about the making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It, it was really just a few interviews with some of the uh, cast family members, you know, the bad guys in the movie, the, uh, the brothers. And I heard a story from Edwin Neal, who I later befriended, and um, he talked about one of the final scenes that they were shooting, which is a legendary a uh, well over 24-hour shoot that occurred in a very hot room with no ventilation, and there were rotting meat on the table and decaying animals and chickens and all kinds of things that they used as props. And when he said it was more pleasurable to be in the Vietnam War, which he is a veteran of, than to be in that long, perhaps 36-hour shoot, that just ignited my imagination as to what could have happened on that set. And then I continued my research and um, forged a story. You know, South Texas Blues, however factual it may be, is not a documentary. It assumes the character of Toby Hooper, the director of the movie, who later on went to go direct Poltergeist with Steven Spielberg and many other films, including Life Force and Fun House and Salem's Lot for TV before that. And so Toby is the antihero throughout the film. And he's speaking his mind and his soul as he's preparing to make this movie and make this movie. And so it goes deep into his imagination, his anxiety, his paranoia, and assumes that as a struggling 30-year-old documentary filmmaker. He was not famous at the time, and nobody really believed in him until the very end. And you'll see how this story ends. It does not end at a glorious film festival with awards and uh, sycophants hanging around. It ends with him alone, I'll say that much, alone, left with just his vision and just walking on that endless road where you don't know how your life is going to turn out. And I think all of us can relate to that. And I have such a passion for this story, you know, I've put it away many times. And in recent years, after making a few television shows and a television series producing that, uh, it did catch the attention of a co-production company, and we are currently developing it into a limited series. And even though South Texas Blues is about the struggles of independent filmmaking, it is now going to be a studio 
motion picture. I'm okay with that because of the people involved so far. I think they totally get it. They love the screenplay as it is. And um, I know how to expand it too, because when it does become a limited series, it's now going to uh, be longer than it is. And so I wrote at best a two and a half hour movie. And this is probably going to be a six hour movie. Um, and so I, I, I have an honest way on how to extend this story. There are more, there's more to this story and more to each individual that was involved that is going to make a fantastic limited series. And I'm looking forward to bringing this to fruition finally as a motion picture. But for now, my book is out. You can read the story as I wrote it. It's available on Amazon now all around the world in paperback, hardcover, and Kindle. Uh, I prefer the paperback out of all formats. The Kindle format is interesting. It's a file. It you can augment it, change fonts. Um, and for the people that love their Kindle, it's there for you. We formatted it for Kindle, so it works as a Kindle. But my preferred format always is paperback. And, um, you know, you can read deep into this story. There are many documentary-like books about the subject now. They came out from the time I started writing it to now. Even Gunnar Hansen's um, autobiography did not come out until well after South Texas Blues was written. So this was the first written on the subject, and it's it's stylized and fictionalized. It's very different than uh, anything you may have read about the subject, and it's its own unique vision and will always remain that. And um, that's what I wanted people to read. I wanted people to read something I was extremely passionate about. This was never uh, to jump on a bandwagon or to cash in on someone else's idea at all. This was something just like every other story that comes to my mind, that every other documentary I make or every other subject I tackle, that it is a true passion. And just like Toby, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know if someone's going to enjoy this or not. And that's the risk you have to take. Um, I'll read an excerpt from my uh, from the essay in South Texas Blues. Now, there's a foreword by uh, Chris Alexander. Chris was the editor-in-chief of Fangoria magazine at the time of its publishing as a comic strip. And um, he's been a supporter of this all the way through, and I truly appreciate him. Here's an excerpt from my essay in the South Texas Blues book. It's called Of Chainsaws and Outlaws. All right, so I'll read a little bit to you. Movie makers are metaphysical gamblers. We're outlaws by nature. We made that audacious decision to commit to this uncertain craft for life. We don't bet on roulette wheels in Texas Hold'em. We gamble with time, ability, and our confidence. We have big dreams and vision. Our path is far-sighted and always pending, a constant forge to somehow make it all happen. There is no great summit. We're in this jagged climb until our final note is played. South Texas Blues is the story of Toby Hooper, an outlaw movie maker, who, as a result of his risky act of metagambling, inspired the creative evolution of an entire both lambasted and celebrated genre. Nobody at that time saw it coming. There's not one person who even remotely dreamt of the success, influence, and infamy that followed the release of his independent drive-in horror show. If they now tell you otherwise, they are lying to your face. It's important to understand that most of the cast and crew didn't believe in the movie or its director. There was little faith during the summer of 1973 in our legendary horror maestro. 
That's because at that time, he was a struggling 30-year-old documentary filmmaker. He only made one independent motion picture, Eggshells, 1969, before it, and that little psychedelic, hippie daydream was the epitome of obscure and unnoticed. Toby wasn't famous. There was no pretense to inspire the sycophants that often accompany a film production. The odds of it being anything more than a fleeting grindhouse footnote in the lower annals of cinema history were against everyone involved. What we now know as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and everything like it that followed didn't exist. The audience was lured into a theatrical experience unlike any other. It was psychological grit and unabashed offensiveness. Its rotten teeth bit into their sensibilities. It was a luridly robbed cemetery and a provocative, documentary-like descent into the depths of a human hell that could only exist in the hidden, unwashed threads of an isolated family gone very wrong. It was naive youth caught on a macabre meat hook while quivering under dusty shafts of Texas dusk. It was a deranged cannibal transvestite, nervously slathering on powder, lipstick, and rouge, with murder on his shattered mind. It was Texas gothic macabre. What they finally projected on the screen was mostly achieved with suggestion and atmosphere. It was shaped and assembled completely outside of a Hollywood that was going through major changes. So that was just a, a small excerpt from a, a five-page essay that opens the book. And then it goes into um, a, a few notes on the screenplay format for people who aren't used to reading that. And it's a very big screenplay, you know, com in comparison to regular feature scripts, it's almost twice the size. And um, it's a solid three-act structure of a drama, a stylized drama about the intensity, the passion, and, um, and the mania that goes into making a motion picture, the struggles of it, having to struggle with production, having to struggle with other people who can't see the vision. And, you know, when people on set are doubting this man, and they're even doubting the thing they're part of, you know, many of the cast and crew were just saw it as a summer job. Now, the reason why I feel this is so important is because this horror film has gone through many stages. It began with infamy upon its release, but while it was being made, you know, you had people that were just waiting to get paid for their summer job. They weren't really thinking about this. They were going to move on. But most people involved, this is the most important thing they ever worked on. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the thing that lasted 50 years and will last another 100 years. In 100 years from now, as long as, uh, you know, people are moving and breathing and watching movies, someone's going to be watching that film and there'll be sequels and merchandise and all the things that came after. But the, the way it started was this taboo almost that it was a dare to even see it. That's so fascinating. What a motion picture can achieve and how it can affect generations of people is paranormal. It's just as paranormal as any other phenomena. And so South Texas Blues is about that. It's, it's how all the stars are aligned for something like that. Perhaps there's another influence behind it. Perhaps destiny has a deeper meaning. And so all of these movies that we've watched either are imitating life or affecting life in some way. And I'll talk about those tonight. So another film I'd like to discuss, and it led to a series of other fantastic independent motion pictures by the mighty George Romero. 
tell you a story about George in a little bit. But I grew up, George Romero was one of my cinema heroes growing up. I read about him in Fangoria, saw his movies. My parents owned a video store in the 80s, and um, I was immersed in his work. And uh, so Night of the Living Dead obviously came out years before I was born. But uh, my parents would talk about how they saw it at a drive-in in the late 60s. And uh, my dad would tease my mother with lines from the movie and that famous line, uh, from Russ Striner, where he was uh, taunting Judith O'Day, who played his sister, in a cemetery, and he would say, they're coming to get you, Barbara. You know, my dad would tease my mom that way. They were scared. It was a scary movie, especially for its time, and still is. But the thing that George Romero was doing before anybody else, and not in a, in a ham-fisted way, you know, he did it in a very honest way, was including in the deep subtext a commentary about what was happening in the world. That was also part of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It commented on the times, the violence of the day, the turmoil politically, social political turmoil. It's all there. It's in the threads of, of the motion picture, and it's not meant to slam a lesson in your face or browbeat you. It's there as a commentary. It's there as a neutrality. It's there as an observation. And I love that when it comes to horror films. And so George Romero's work always was that way, especially the Living Dead films. There is another meaning underneath it. Night of the Living Dead was somewhat a commentary on the Vietnam War. It was on the racial turmoil that was happening with riots and uh, fighting and arguments and assassinations and all kinds of things that were happening in the United States and in the world at the time. Dawn of the Dead was about the consumerism of the late 70s. You know, it was there in the subtext of the film, greed and consumerism. And in, the, in his third and my favorite of the Living Dead trilogy, uh, Day of the Dead was a commentary on the Cold War and the worry that the world was going to end in nuclear holocaust. And so those fears are put into these horror films there are ways for us to, in a cathartic way, kind of get these things out of our system, observe in art. And Romero was another one at the time, just like Toby Hooper or Stephen King. They were all heavily criticized for their work. They weren't as appreciated as they are now. Sometimes motion pictures are a bit ahead of their time. A little bit of a story here about George Romero, things come in full circle, is that... Uh, you know, my very first documentary out of film school, I didn't even know what I was doing, uh, was called Horror Business. Ended up getting a distribution and was playing at some cinema arts centers and, and film festivals in the early 2000s. And um, George Romero ended up checking it out. And probably about a month later, he contacted me because my email address was on a screener that he got his hands on. And... Um, you know, this is, this is a, one of my filmmaking heroes, a, right along Martin Scorsese or Francis Coppola. George Romero was an equal to that and uh, had an equal impact on me as an artist and, and as a human being. And so George emailed me and ultimately told me how much he loved horror business and then invited me to the set of his motion picture, Diary of the Dead, which I went to 
and spent some time with him. And uh, one of the greatest, uh, most fortunate moments, you know, in the world of filmmaking is to meet your hero in a positive way. And uh, he was he was fantastic, such an influence on me. Always remaining independent, you know, he would turn his back on major projects, no matter how much money was on the table. He would turn his back on that for the sake of the artwork and for the sake of him having control over the canvas. That is not a totalitarian way of thinking either. It is required when you're a visionary and when you have something to say, you cannot have someone holding your hand. Essentially, imagine, if you will, a painter at a canvas uh, passionate about the next brushstroke and someone's coming over and grabbing their wrist every step of the way and saying, well, I have a right to do this because I bought you that paintbrush. And that is not the way it should work. I think every movie that was approached in that manner was a failure. I could name lists and lists of them. And that a lot of the time, if they would just let the director have that final cut, at least to see what that is and have more than one or two people make a judgment call on that, the movies would have been fantastic. was true. The most bizarre and brutal series of crimes in America. as real, just as close. Just as terrifying as being there. Even if one of them survives, what will be left? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. After you stop screaming, you'll start talking about it. series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine.
but there were also independent directors that worked for studios. Let's talk about William Friedkin for a second. He was the director of The Exorcist, but previously he had just made and finished a movie called The French Connection. The producers of The Exorcist did not want him to direct the movie. They had a different director attached, but the writer of The Exorcist, uh, William Peter Blatty, insisted that William Friedkin direct that motion picture. The producers that refused to hire him had only known of his motion picture that came before The French Connection, because The French Connection was yet to be released, called The Boys in the Band. And with their expository thinking, they felt that's all he could do. Well, you know, your imagination would tell you that perhaps uh, someone who is able to conquer one type of story that could approach a completely different subject matter and achieve greatness with it. Well, this is one of those cases because they ended up seeing the French connection and realized that perhaps he is the right director and they really wanted him. So after much struggle, Friedkin was hired to direct The Exorcist. But his methods of movie making were a bit extreme, especially for these times. Um, you know, William Friedkin would not get away with what he got away with on the set back then. And that included, uh, for instance, here's an example. If you're familiar with the movie, The Exorcist, at the very end of the picture, Father Damien Karras, one of the main characters in the film, ends up sacrificing himself because a demon jumps into him out of the little girl who's possessed, and he decides the only way he's going to conquer this demon is to commit suicide. So he jumps out a window, falls down a long flight of stairs, and is dying. And the character Father Dyer was actually played by a Catholic priest. He was not an actor and was having trouble emoting uh, for the screen, for the shot. So William Friedkin approached him and asked, do you trust me? And he responded, yes. And so Friedkin slapped him as hard as he could in the face and then yelled to Owen Roisman, who was the cinematographer, to roll camera. And what you see on the screen is a man who is broken and crying because he just got slapped in the face, but creates the illusion for us that he's broken because his best friend just killed himself and he's giving him his last rites. Now, that was so effective for audiences around the world and continues to be. You know, there was yet another revival of the original Exorcist in theaters now, and that scene is affecting people around the world to this very moment. And um, so, is it justified that William O'Malley told William Friedkin on the set that he trusted him, that William Friedkin slap him in the face to get him to cry genuinely? to get him to be scared, to get him to react. Uh, personally, I think, you know, a director needs to come up with more clever ways and not be so brutal. But that was Friedkin's directing method at the time, and directors were quite radical. So what I'd like to also offer before I talk about a few more uh, movies is um, a couple of quotes from some of my past guests. And I, I encourage you to... Uh, check out those ep those full episodes but here's a quote from edwin neal it was the very first episode of off to the witch and um ed played for for those of you who don't know edwin neal played the character of the hitchhiker in my opinion the scariest and you know, most terrifying character in the movie 
uh, in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And here's a little bit about his experiences and uh, leading up to his part in the movie. Our lines for acting class, and so we were just, we so well, we'll just get sloshed and we'll just make them up. But so we slosh back to the drama department and a little girl outside, of course, says, uh, oh, you're going to audition for the movie? And we said, what movie? So we go in on the board and we read the little announcement and we run upstairs. And we go, oh, let's go see what the crap this is all about. We look at each other there, and my two friends and I, we look at each other and we hear Toby talking to one of the people that's already trying out. And I, go, and I lean over and I go, let's wind this guy up and they go okay you go first so he comes up to me and he had a little clint eastwood cigar in his mouth he goes hey can you be weird and my two friends of course go to the floor <laughs> they start yelling can he be weird <laughs> you got the guy right there right there so he goes come on over so i go and I, I and i thought well what can i do to wind him up i just get him out of here so we can get on to our acting class something important rather than this cockamamie Z movie that they're trying to make. Because you know? we're looking at the sides and we're, we're giggling our butts off because you want me to say what? <laughs> this is, we're thinking, you know, this is stupid. So, so I, I start, I go, and then I immediately said, Oh, I know what I'll do. I, to wind him up, I'll, I'll do uh, my schizophrenic, my truly schizo paranoid schizophrenic nephew who does all that stuff with a hand with his hands up around his face. He does all that stuff. So I start doing my nephew and the look of fear in Hooper's eyes. <laughs> I'll never forget as long as I look, because he was like, Whoa, he was fearful. And I thought, oh, I'll better tone it down a little bit, <laughs> so, but it was too late. He was already backing up like, Oh my God. So I thought, well, we went, got rid of his ass and we went on, you know, over to next door to the acting class. Well, here comes Kim Hinkle a couple of days later up at the, uh, I worked up at the cattle. I was cataloging collections uh, 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 up at the uh, Harry Ransom center. And uh, he come, he found out where I worked. They told him down at the drama department. Oh, he's up at the Harry Ransom. So here he comes with a contract. He says, here, here's a contract. Ed. we, we want you to be in this film. I said, why? Well, I don't. I, I'm a stage actor. I do Shakespeare, Moliere, Ennui. I couldn't possibly do a horror film. It's so beneath me. And he goes, well, uh, uh, we just think you'd be really good in it. And I think, well, and I thought to myself, I said, well, what the hell? Nobody will ever see it. You know, you, you know, you take from those experiences that there were human beings behind those roles. They took it seriously. And I truly believe each person involved in the making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre took it seriously. They, they put something forward. There was talent involved all across because it was consistent. If you look at it now with a, with a, a great cinematic eye, and if you have an eye for cinema, you know, you'll see it. You'll see the power in that work and you'll understand why its place in history is important. Now, another movie uh, that I covered on Off to the Witch was yet another independent horror picture. And interesting enough, the impact of that movie, it didn't really occur until later. I think people are truly discovering Madman, which was 1981 horror, drive-in horror movie, kind of now 
you know, it's like really hitting them in the last 10 years and it, and increases its, its, um, fan base every year because when it came out it it didn't achieve the heights that like friday the 13th or halloween did but it is a fun movie and it's a great movie to watch during halloween and so here's a little um excerpt from the interview with paul ehlers i've interviewed paul twice now for off to the witch here's a little bit of paul telling some stories behind the scenes of madman uh there's the famous story i've told of of the girls, the actresses, uh, were aware of someone creeping around in the woods, around the set, and they saw him peering through the bushes and so forth. And one night when I was in makeup and I wasn't really filming, Joey takes me aside. He said, uh, Paul, since you're in costume, you want to go and try and find this guy and kind of put a little fear into him, scare him and get him off the set? So it was so cool because I'm thinking everything else I'm acting. Now I get to act and actually scare somebody. So I went out looking around the woods and, you know, I couldn't find him. I guess lucky for him, I didn't find him. But, um, you know, it, it was, there was a lot of camaraderie on set. We, we all got along great. Uh, you know, I told you I would have given anything to have been in the mind of a seven, eight-year-old going into a theater seeing this film. People came up to me, people now in their 30s, some of them maybe older, even some kids. They would say to me, Paul, I just wanted to tell you, you scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. I it's like I won the lottery. I went, really? They say, yes, I had nightmares. I had, I wouldn't go out in the dark. We used to, you know, bet a dollar that you won't go out in the, in the yard at night and say Madman Mars loud. Just a little news coming up. I have the official trailer for a haunting we will go will be released uh within a week and i'll keep you posted on that but keep an eye out for it because it's going to get some press if uh, you don't know a haunting we will go is the first episode feature length episode first chapter of my new docuseries and this is the first docuseries i've made since i made strange world with discovery and travel channel and um i am so happy with it it's coming out so good uh Two episodes have been shot. A Haunting We Will Go is almost ready. I'm going to work on it for another couple of months because it deserves it. It came out so amazing. And you're about to see a nice preview of it in about a week. If you love ghost stories, Halloween, and horror movies, which was our subject tonight, uh, check out A Haunting We Will Go. And the second chapter is a completely different thing, as the third will be and the fourth. So I decided... Instead of just manufacturing a series with a network and, and really not having final cut or a say in its finality, I decided to make these specials. And you'll see maybe one or two of these a year from me. And, um, you know, because I'm working on a variety of other projects and I, I want to be able to work on these. Quality is more important to me than quantity. You know, I'm, someone can brag about their 15 documentaries a year, but if none of them are good, then what's it worth? I want to make fantastic work. I want to make work that lasts. 
my last independent documentary was Montauk Chronicles. Then I ended up doing stuff with uh, networks and studios and will continue to. But this new series, the only thing I'm interested in terms of a docuseries right now is this independent series that I'm making. And it will be available all around the world on streaming networks. It just won't be isolated to one of them. I can't wait to share it with you, so stay tuned. And um, I really thank you for joining me tonight and for listening to Off to the Witch. If you're a new listener, um, backtrack and listen to uh, all of our other episodes. And um, the Patreon will be available very soon. So I'll announce the Patreon officially on next week's show. And um, there's a lot to offer in there because of all these projects that I'm working on, in addition to completely ad-free episodes of Off to the Witch, you're going to see a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, movie trailers, maybe early screenings of documentaries, and um, some live stream stuff, some fireside chats, stories, and ways to communicate with me and each other. So stay tuned for everything, and uh, I hope you have an amazing week, and I will see you next week. Take care. <laughs>